0: You know, we really are a society obsessed with (laughs) self-discovery. We are saturated in this constant cultural conversation about self-help and self-care and self-love. And yet, there's this tragic paradox. For most of us, no matter what age we find ourselves at, we have a hard time discerning, truly defining... This is who I am. And though the cultural and societal conversation is saturated with self-awareness, if we're honest, we actually don't know what our truest self is. In the United States alone, there are over 2,500 personality tests on the market right now, promising to help you discern your deepest psychodynamics and your historical patterns of life so you can know the true you finally. The website, truity.com. They've arranged a, an entire list of empirically and scientifically validated personality tests. And so you can go to truity.com and you can take TypeFinder or the Big Five Assessment, or Career Profile, or DISC, or Strength Finders, or Enneagram. And if somebody hasn't, how many of you have that annoying friend that has already Enneagram typed you? Just raise your hand. How, how many of you are the annoying friend that you're Enneagram typing everybody? Right, yeah, that's me too, totally. Over two million tests are taken every month at (laughs) truity.com. And so we have to ask this question, why are we so lost? Why are we having such a hard time defining ourselves? The biblical authors, and we are Bible people. It is at the very center and core of who we are. It forms how we look at the world. The biblical authors they explain this paradoxical predicament in a very, very precise way and in a very powerful way. The ancient Hebrews, they told the tale of two selves. Two selves. The first was a self constructed out of and by God's love. Our identity, the Hebrew sages said, was actually received from our Creator Father in Him, dirt in whom He had breathed life into, to walk in intimate, unified relationship with Him. And out of that love and adoration, we experienced a self constructed by God's love. The second, said these Hebrew sages, was a false self, constructed by us out of our own effort and ingenuity and ability. And this false self was constructed to camouflage and to compensate for an overwhelming sense of shame due to our separation from God. So goes the story. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. And the nude imagery of the Hebrew sages was more than just describing physical nudity. What they were saying was humans in right relationship with God They were able to see and celebrate their purest, uncovered, unadulterated selves. And they could do so, these perfect humans, because they experienced God's adoration of themselves. They existed in the delight of their creator, seeing them and perfectly loving them. Adam and Eve, Adam, dirt, and Eva, source of life. They knew that they were significant by the very fact that God had created them. In fact, their very existence, just breathing air for Adam and Eve, was enough. They said to themselves, I am significant. God has created me. I am amazing. I am delighted in. I am loved, naked, and unashamed before my Father and before my fellow human. So they experienced this sense of continual acceptance by God and by each other. And there was no separation. There was no sense of deformity. There was no sense of perversion or envy or fear or insecurity. They were fully themselves and without shame, the text tells us. And then, of course, we know there was a snake in the garden, something afoot, something diabolical, later to be called the devil himself. And he deceived Adam and Eve and brought them to a place of sin the sin that separated God from Adam and Eve was the serpent convinced them to believe that there was more to being themselves than just being loved by God, just breathing the air that God had given them. The lie that that sin created in their souls was that there was something more than living outside of God's adoration and outside of God's acceptance. And so they believed those lies and they believed that they could become more than themselves, that they could self-create and that they could self-define. And so as, the, as they disobeyed God, what happened was then they were cut off from God and the experience of his pure delight. And that is exactly what shame is. Shame is one of those really hard things to define. We all know what it is. We all experience it, but it's, it's very hard to define. And so the story... Of Genesis tells us that shame is is a sense of separation. It's this acute awareness that something is wrong with our very self. So Adam and Eve, their sense of significance was destroyed. Their sense of security was demolished. Their sense of acceptance was lost. And all of a sudden now, they experience themselves before God and each other as ugly and as deformed. And so they hid themselves. And they clothed themselves with fig leaves, they tell us. Now, the fig leaves, that was the Hebrew author's kind of metaphor for the creation of this false self. They covered their truest selves, and you and I have been doing the exact same thing from the moment we were born. We cannot find ourselves because we are born creating this false self that camouflages and covers our essence, We are born committed to controlling others' perceptions of us, controlling our own perceptions of ourselves, telling ourselves all sorts of stories and narratives, creating who we think we should be in accordance with our own ideas, and we are born trying to camouflage and cover ourselves from the eyes of our Father, who sees through all of it perfectly. Sin deforms our sense of who we truly are. Sin convinces us that we actually can create our own identity apart from what God has made us to be. We believe the lie. We believe that we develop ourselves and we define ourselves. And so what we end up doing from the day we're born till the day we die is striving to construct this false self on outward things like wealth or power or looks and status. And then we define our sense of inner self by every desire that kind of bubbles up to the surface. Even though many of those desires are destructive to who God actually made us to be. St. Peter, he warned his churches spread throughout Asia Minor saying, there are sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Post-fall, separated from God, there are deforming, self-destructive desires which create a civil war against true self and false self, and false self destroys true self when we live according to these inward false desires. And so the false self constructed by this flimsy scaffolding of the world's values and then driven by sinful desires, that false self that we're all living in is actually a, it's a self-destroying self. And so God loves us. God loved Adam and Eve. God loves you. God loves the true you. And so God loves us enough to begin to come to us and say, let me take part of that fig leaf away. Let me start to take off this false self. You guys realize that the world's impulse around us, the cultural narrative, the societal story that we're telling ourselves, that self-love and self-acceptance, we all need to realize that impulse, that instinct is actually very much from God. God wants us to love and accept ourselves. The difference is, in the biblical narrative, is God wants us to experience his love for our true self, not our false self. This is why he separated Adam and Eve from the garden. He didn't want them to live in that self-destructive state for eternity. So he separated themselves to make a way to overcome the false self and give to them a new self again in Jesus. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus taught that we must be born again. That we must literally once again as Adam and Eve were dirt and had life breathed into them. We who are dead in our sins and trespasses constructing our false selves. We too must be born again and have God breathe new life. And give to us a new created identity that we receive from him. And we have to let what St. Paul called the old man. That false self that we've constructed our whole life. Paul the great apostle would say you have to let that die. You have to actually let that go back into the ground and become dirt. And so, as counterintuitive, as culturally opposite as it is, to find ourselves, the biblical narrative says we have to lose ourselves. Those were Jesus' exact words, capitalizing and summarizing the entirety of Genesis. To find your true self, you actually first have to completely lose yourself. Now, we never at Neighbors Church do three steps to your best life now type teachings. Like, it just doesn't happen. We never have, like, one, two, three steps to successfully finding you. What we are going to do this morning is four steps on how to lose yourself. How's that for a Sunday morning? Four steps on how to lose yourself from the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth here in John chapter 12. If you have your notebooks, please write these down and track along. Step number one on how to lose yourself. Come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. John tells us there in verse 20 that there were these curious Greeks, these pagans, these non-Jewish proselytes possibly. They were possibly beginning to convert to Judaism. And they had heard these outlandish stories about this peasant carpenter preacher from Nazareth out there raising people from the dead and turning water to wine and these ludicrous, like, contrarian kind of populist-style teachings that were drawing these huge crowds. These Greeks had been hearing word of this Jesus, and so they were very curious about him, and they wanted to go and see him. The Greek text itself is actually a little more emphatic. They wanted an interview with Jesus. They wanted to get close to him. They wanted to learn about him. They wanted to ask him questions. They wanted to see Jesus. They were genuine seekers with real questions. And I want you guys to understand something. These Greeks, they were very much like us. Just very much like the average, modern American. Like most of us. They were spiritual, but not overly devout. Not too zealous. Not too religious. They were skeptical. Very intelligent. Most likely pretty well read. They kept extremism at arm's length. But there was something just fascinating about this Jesus guy. This Jesus thing that they were hearing about, this this thing that was like, well, I don't have a category for that. And so curiosity is what kills the cat, so to speak. Curiosity about Jesus is the beginning of the end of the false self. Jesus is so absolutely category breaking that even the briefest encounter with his teachings, with his reality, it creates tectonic shifts, paradigm shifts within the sense of who we are and who he is and what this world is. And this scenario happens all the time in church communities. I've been in part of the church for 20 years now, and I came from a pretty rough pagan background, came into a brand new thing called the church, and then I met all these people that have been raised in the church, but in my opinion, did not know Jesus. They had like a huge church background. They were traditionalist. They were moralist. There are many people in our society that still add religion and tradition as part of their sense of self. It's part of their fig leaf that they put on. I'm a good person because I go to church. I'm a good person because I'm religious. I'm a good person because I have these traditions. I'm a good self because I have these moral codes that I keep. But they don't actually know Jesus. Until something happens in the spirit where all of a sudden they're like, wait, uh, wait, Jesus is actually alive? Jesus is actually the creator of everything that exists, including me. And, and I can actually know him and talk to him and, and, and have a relationship with a living, breathing reality that is God in the flesh. This is happening all over. And so when a person realizes that there is something more to their self and to the spirituality than just moral code keeping and traditions and religion. But that Jesus is this breathing reality. It's, it's literally game over. And I would say for those of us at Neighbors, because I know most of you and we are like going for it, leaning in, we want more of Jesus. It's always good for us to ask ourselves continually, in this activity, do I want to see Jesus? Am I in a gathering? Am I attending church? Am I going to a small group? Am I praying? Am I fasting? Am I doing these things so that I can interview Jesus, have an interaction with Jesus, instead of just keep my kind of self false self propped up in my checklist of to-dos in being a morally good person. Did all of that make sense? Step number 1, come and see Jesus. And when a soul wants to see Jesus, Jesus goes to work dismantling the false self. Number 2. Step number 1 in losing yourself, come and see Jesus. Step number 2, you got to let it die. Let it die. <laughs> This is definitely not how you grow a church. <laughs> this, is, this is hard to hear. Jesus' teachings are like so hard to hear. You got to let it die. Jesus being ever unpredictable. He just, these guys go to get an interview with him. They're asking life questions. They're curious about who he is and what life is all about. And Jesus doesn't give them wise counsel or pithy teaching. He points them in and in. He doesn't even like respond. He just gives them this. He points directly to himself, his death, and ultimately his followers' death as the answer to everything that they're seeking. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This marks a massive turning point in the Gospel of John for those of you that have been tracking with us from the beginning. From this chapter on, the story focuses on the very last week of Jesus' life. So the cross now is looming and Jesus is looking forward to his ultimate end and the end of his mission, which isn't only death, it's resurrection, and ultimately Jesus is looking forward to glorification. His father saying, I vindicate my son. I lift him up and I make him the most famous, honored creation and being in all of the universe. This is what Jesus is looking forward to over this last week of his life. But to get there, he wants everyone in his his crew, his followers, to realize that just as he had to go into the ground and die to be vindicated, so too his followers will have to go into the ground and die, so to speak, to be vindicated and glorified. And so Jesus lived in an agrarian society, and he was a master illustrator. And so to explain the necessity and the fruitfulness of his death, he turned and he pointed at all the wheat fields, and he said something that all the listeners would have been familiar with. Verse 24, very truly I tell you unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains only a single seed but if it dies it produces many seeds So they whoever they are they they say that there's an entire forest in every acorn if you guys ever heard that that's a beautiful image isn't it And Jesus also understood that there was an entire wheat field in fact there were multitudes of multiplied wheat fields in a single seed buried in the ground that died So Jesus, in his love, to bring us back to the garden, intentionally chose to let his life be laid down, knowing that not only would he be raised from the dead and glorified, but it would also multiply life for all of humanity throughout all of eternity. And yet Jesus turns a very quick corner here in his teaching, in his response to these Greek seekers who had come to see him. He turns from himself and his death and the multiplied eternal life he was going to give by his resurrection to his followers and the calling that they too would have to go into the ground and die. Verse 25. Anyone who loves their life loses it, Jesus said, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So, Follow the the train of thought here. Jesus starts with his uniquely fruitful death and then he quickly moves to the mandated death of Jesus' followers as the necessary condition of their own life. That's weighty. So last week, just reflecting on last week's teachings, we contrasted the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Caiaphas, and Judas with Mary. We contrasted their lives. So that first group the Pharisees and Sadducees and Caiaphas and Judas. They were people that spent their entire lives cajoling for power and manipulating and striving for position. And what we see from their lives is that they were a miserable lot who lost everything in the end that they were striving for, that they were bullying for. They lost it all in the end anyway. Their lives were wasted in futility. Then we see Mary from last week, and Mary has let go of everything. Mary just sits at Jesus' feet. She pours out that which is of greatest value to her. She doesn't care that in a society of men, she should not be letting her hair down. Instead, she lets her hair down, letting go of all social restraint to wash the feet of Jesus with perfume and with her very hair. We see Mary living as this woman who has gained life. She's free. She's content. She has everything that we are all striving for, a life of peace, a life of fullness, a life of purpose. While you look at Caiaphas and you look at Judas and you look at the Pharisees and you see a life of strife and anxiety and cajoling and bullying. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in the love your life, hate your life language. He's saying those who spend their whole lives struggling and striving to create themselves, to to make it in the eyes of others, to make it in their own eyes, of their own narratives. He says, those people actually are going to lose their life. Strive and struggle and bully and cajole and worry and work. And at the end of the day, you lose your life. I'm sure we've all known, or maybe this is even you this morning, where you didn't get the career that you wanted. Or you didn't get the promotion. Or you lost that one relationship. Or you never got that relationship. And they, or maybe you, or maybe all of us have said at some point, my life is over. My life is over because you lost that which you were basing your life on. A life based in the world's values is over when the world's goods are lost. But, Jesus says, those who have a holy disregard for kind of this world's values and really a heavenly discontent, those who learn to hate kind of this world and its ways in this life, they live towards the kingdom come. And ultimately, at the end, though they will lose everything that this world says is of value and worth, though they will lose that, their deepest, deepest desires, their garden children's created selves will receive their deepest desires. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples who are to act in this world as he does. We are to love our mission that God has given us more than we love our own lives. In fact, this is how St. Paul put it with the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Put to death the constructs and the values of the world that we build ourselves on. Put it to death. Dallas Willard, he says this. Death to self means releasing all our desires, our reputation, Our glory, our having our way with other people. Willard would say death to self means death to everything. And I want you guys to recognize that this is not easy. This is not an easy life to live, giving ourselves over to the loss of what the world values. And to actually experience death is not some beautiful, peaceful, wonderful, I'm just giving my life to Jesus. It's so good. It's agonizing. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. Death is hard. And Jesus knew that. If you skip down to verse 27, notice what Jesus said about his own coming death. He said, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. When the Spirit begins to crucify the old self in us, you'll know it because you'll be crying out, God, no. God, please don't take this from me. God, please, I have to have this. This is my life. God, I'm going to die without this. Now you know. That Jesus is dismantling the false self because with Jesus you are crying out with a deep trouble. The Greek here carries tones of revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. But because sin has so convinced us, friends... That the false self that we construct according to the world's values, when we begin to lose it, when God begins to peel off the little layers of fig leaf that we have piled up over the duration of our lifetime, it feels like real death to us and it is terrifying, terribly disorienting. We will find ourselves, as we said in our deconstruction session, God, are you even good? God, am I being punished? as we are being stripped down back to the core essence of who we are, and we will revolt against the work of the Spirit as the old self dies. Do you guys realize that when you call, when we call ourselves disciples, the root of the word disciple has within it discipline, discipline, discipline. There is a tremendous amount of effort and struggle and discipline involved in the hard work of dying to the false self. In fact, when I first got into therapy and my spiritual director told me that I was doing the hard work at 35 that some guys don't do till they're 60 when it all just falls apart. (laughs) And he was telling me how grateful he was that I was being stripped so early. And I was like, what? (laughs) He told me over and over every week, Dan, kiddo, you're doing the hard work right now. And all, all I was doing was dying to dreams. All I was doing was dying to the pain of people not liking me. (laughs) And every week he's like, kiddo, you're doing the hard, hard work. Now, years into therapy and spiritual direction, I I can look back and I can say, "It it is hard work. It is a farmer's work burying these seeds. It's a farmer's work, hard work. Friends, there's going to, in the duration of our lives, when we walk with Jesus, there will be millions, millions of times Where we once again have to come to our Father and say, I renew my commitment to burying this false life. And in that moment, we have to once again learn to trust that the Father wants to glorify us. All the things we long for, significance, acceptance, love, adoration, brightness, glory, honor, all of these things. The Father wants to do that, just not in the way that our false self constructs it. And so we have to come forward to our Father again with Jesus saying, I trust you, Father, that the truest part of me is going to emerge, rise up, resurrect from the death of this false self. And that is what Jesus did. Jesus was facing his death. He cried out to his father, is there any other way? This is going to be awful. I don't want to go through this. And then he said, verse 27, no. It's for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. We have to trust that the loss of what we're experiencing as the basis of our life, we have to trust our Father that for this hour we came and our death, our sense of death, will result in a multiplied true life for all of eternity. Number three. Number one, come and see Jesus. Number two, let it die. As we lose ourselves, number three, watch for what emerges. Watch for what emerges. Let me unpack this. Verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. A life that follows and serves Jesus is literally a life of being led instead of leading, which is very difficult for us. Tighten up our bootstraps, tighten up the belt. Enneagram three, performer Americans. We lead the way, we lead the charge, we pioneer. But in following Jesus, we learn to actually be led. We learn that life is actually a process of receiving instead of reacting. (laughs) We don't force life. We let our lives and our purposes and our true selves emerge from the soils of prayer and the practices of faith and discipline. This idea, this image of emergence, it's been huge for me for going on at least a couple years now. When a farmer buries a kernel of wheat in the ground... He doesn't stress and strive and then stand there and scream at the soil to get the wheat to come up faster. <laughs> Can you imagine how strange? I grew up in Idaho and in a very agrarian culture, lots of farmers. Can you imagine? They go out and they plant the seeds and then you just see the farmer's family standing on the edge of the field. Grow! Show up! Where are you? I'm so worried you're not going to show up, with here? no. <laughs> What does a farmer do? The farmer plants the seed, and then there's still obedience. The farmer tends to the seed in the ground with fertilizer, with water. We call that prayer. We call that community. We call that Sunday gatherings. We call that all these things that we tend to as we plant the seeds of our lives into the ground. And then we watch what emerges. There is obedience, but a life that postures itself. Watching for what emerges is a categorically different posture of heart than all of us live in most of the time. Let's just be honest. Most of us are screaming at the soils of our lives right now. Make this happen! Please! Versus, what's going to happen? Now, we all nod our heads. We all want, yeah, what's going to happen? That's good, Dan. I like that. But the false self, oh... Man, he's gnarly, he's loud, he's strong. He doesn't go down easy. So over and over and over. We learn these practices, and here at Neighbors, we're developing what we call contemplative charismatic Christianity. There's lots of teaching on this in our podcast. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. But on the contemplative side of things, I've learned a lot from them. It has taken years now, years of me literally being deeply still and deeply silent for minutes, sometimes longer than minutes, for very extended periods of time, just letting the Spirit help me investigate, why am I so full of anxiety? Why am I depressed? Why am I angry? Oh, oh, it's because right now my false life is threatened by the loss of this, by the fear of not having that. Through silence and stillness, I've been able in the grace of God to begin to discern where the false construct is, where the scaffolding is in my life of what I'm valuing my identity by. And so through that time, I've developed uh, kind of a twist on Ignatius's imaginative prayer. And this is, you really need to track with this. It's going to be so counterintuitive, but it's so helpful Imaginative prayer is both living into the scriptures, but also praying in such a way that we're envisioning what's, what we want in our lives, in our, in our brains. So right now, positive thinking, uh, what, uh, what is it? Uh, manifest destiny. Right now, that's a big thing. Like, I manifested it. Who? There's some musical kid that my kids love. What's, what's his name? He, like, journaled. I'm going to be in this stadium, this stadium, this stadium. Well, I can't remember his name. Sean Mendes. Thank you. Sean Mendes wrote in his journal like a thousand times, "I'm going to play in this stadium," and he manifested his destiny. This, what I'm about to teach you guys, is the complete opposite of that. <laughs> in this process, let me give you a re- let me give you a light example, very light example from my own life. I'm a very insecure person, like terribly, terribly insecure on the inside, terrified, and so I oftentimes have a sense, especially as a pastor. Uh, you, guys, you guys have no clue how much the mental narrative in my head as I'm looking at you, as I'm teaching, like, oh, no, they don't like what I'm saying. <laughs> so if you guys could all take your mask off and just smile, I mean, it would really help my ego a ton. Uh, but don't take your mask off because it's COVID. So here's the thing. Anytime I actually get that, that anxiety deep down about a particular person, I'm like, I've done something wrong. They don't like me. I will use this practice where I'll go into a time of deep silence, And rather than manifesting this person liking me and praying, oh, God, please let them like me, I actually envision the worst-case scenario going all the way out to the end, negative visualization. I literally will take my time, and I will envision, okay, this person doesn't like me for this reason, this reason, And even if it's not true, even if it's just a fabrication of my crazy, anxious, insecure brain, I will envision it all the way through to the very end. This person does not like me for these reasons— And I will, in that process, I have to literally, in my body, let die my need to be liked and accepted by this person, literally. In silence, I'll just envision them not liking me, and then I will envision myself being, okay, they don't like me. (laughs) And I envision, actually, how I would react and interact with this person if they didn't like me. How does Jesus want me to interact and react with this person if they really don't like me? And what happens in that process of silence and solitude and like reverse engineering and negative visualization and and kind of counterintuitive Ignatian imaginative practice, what happens in that is in my body, my theology and my body and my biology, my belief, everything aligns and my need for approval, the Dan that is insecure and needs approval and just wants this person to like them, slowly that Dan just kind of gets buried in the grave. And what rises is calm, secure, loving Dan that can interact with an individual without that filter on and realize, oh, that person actually really does like me. I was just being insecure. <laughs> it's death to the false self. And something more secure, something more true rises. I want you guys to try this this week. And it may be terrifying for you. I want you to take 20 minutes and envision your worst case scenario coming true. Let the vision of yourself that you've constructed based on that career never come true. What happens? Envision the relationship never materializing. Envision the marriage never healing. Envision the wayward child never coming back. Envision the cancer not being healed. Envision the job not being the one you wanted. Envision the, put whatever right now yourself is being constructed on, your sense of value and worth and significance and need and acceptance and love, put whatever it is in that mental space into that worst-case scenario and live it out. And then what Ignatius would say to do is he would say, now tend to what he called the consolations and the desolations. Let yourself explore and observe what happens in your heart and mind if you live out the worst-case scenario. And slowly over time... The Holy Spirit will come and he will begin to let emerge out of that surrender and that death to what is negative. He will let emerge out of that something more positive, something more beautiful, a reframing of what it is to make you more truly you apart from what it is that you're trying to construct. Gosh, I hope this made, did this all make sense? Just give me and do this this week and see where God takes you. See how God forms you. And I always like to close these these times um, of negative imagination with Jesus. Jesus' very words. When Jesus faced the cross, he said, I'm scared. I'm terrified. This is going to hurt. I don't want to go through this. And yet, for this very reason, I came to this hour. Verse 20, Father, glorify your name. That's how we end our negative visualization. For this hour, you created me. I trust you, Father. Father. Bring your glory through my life, and if worst-case scenario unfolds, I know that I am trusting you, and I am obeying you, and you will, as he said to Jesus, I have glorified your name, and I will glorify it again. Now, a couple more things, and we're almost done. We're going to come to communion. For this posture of emergence to actually become the norm for us, and this is going to be so important— we actually have to be following Jesus closely and not watching what's going on in other farmers' fields. <laughs> this is so important. Jesus said, whoever serves me must follow me. So at the very end of this gospel, I cannot wait to get to the end of this gospel, Peter, Peter. Peter is there with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus tells Peter, Peter's envisioning himself, you know, as like the first pope. He's like the head of the church, all this power and glory. He's got the funny hat, all this stuff. And instead, Jesus is like, at the end of your life, you're going to go where you don't want to go. We're told by tradition that St. Peter was actually crucified upside down. Jesus basically told the man, the end of your life is going to be a death, a literal, torturous death. And so Peter is sitting there absorbing this as he's like taking off his pope hat and he's realizing, what? I'm going to die? I'm going to die for you? Oh, my gosh. And then he looks over at his buddy John, and he realizes that Jesus didn't say the same thing to John. In fact, Jesus didn't say anything to John. So, like a good Instagrammer, scrolling through his feed, he's like, what? What about this guy? What about that guy? What about? He's just looking at John now. And so he looks at Jesus, and he says, hey, Lord, what about him? (laughs) And Jesus' answer is so key to this process of emergence of the true self. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me. And Jesus' response is the same to us. As we're scrolling through Instagram saying, hey, Lord, what about them? Hey, Lord, why can't I have that? Hey, Lord, why are you doing that with them? Hey, Lord, how come I, What, what is that to you if I do that with them? You must follow me. And this is what happens. This is what happens. It's so amazing. And I know I sound like an old fogey, and I am. I'm like legit dad age at this point. I've been off of Instagram and all social media for coming up over two years now. Because I just got so tired of like scrolling through Instagram and my friends are like, whoa, look at that fruit fulfilled. Look at that fruit fulfilled. Look at that fruit fulfilled. Look at what's emerging out of their life and their life. And look at what's emerging out of their life. And it just was wrecking me. And so I kept building this false constructed self of, I wish I could be that. I wish I could be that. I wish I could be that. And instead, I was missing the very life in front of me, air in my lungs, my wife, my kids, my church, my life that I'm living right now, where all of this beauty is emerging out of it. and I'm just missing it because I'm so busy looking at everybody else's fields. We have, to be, we have to be adamant with the old man. Like addicts, we have to cut off the things that feed and construct this flimsy, false self that's so insecure and constantly comparing and come and realize that Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you. He loves you infinitely. He loves you incomparably. You, who you are, he loves And you won't see that if you're watching him love others. And yes, your your end may be a martyr's death, and their end may be a throne and a funny hat. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because he is constructing the true you for his glory and for your good. we got to close this. Number four, to truly lose ourselves and find ourselves, come and see Jesus, let it die, see what emerges, and bask in the Father's honor. Learn to bask in the honor of the father. Verse 26, Jesus says, he promises, my father will honor the one who serves me. My dear friend, Joel, he defines honor in this way. Honor is what you choose to pay attention to, what is celebrated, what you give special place and directed focus towards. And so in the garden, honor was God's posture towards Adam and Eve. And this is God's posture towards those who learn to hate the self-constructed life and learn to love serving Jesus. God literally pays extra attention. He celebrates. He gives special place and focus towards the servants of Jesus. And so in serving Jesus and getting our eyes off of the other fields of comparison and looking at what's emerging in our lives, what happens is Jesus returns us to that garden state. And we get to once again experience that naked and unashamed honor from the father. And it also enables us to see each other in our purest selves. Without shaming each other and comparing with each other and competing with each other, we become new garden people. And to be honored by the father is to return to just being a child. All three of my kids, from the time that they were little tiny kids, all they wanted was the honor of their father. Daddy, watch me do this. That is what you and I want more than anything to see our father seeing us and we we fake it we fake it with wealth and position and instagram and social media likes we fake it we get this fake drip of honor when what we are longing for the most is for our father to say and for us to see him seeing us and him saying i delight in you i honor you i applaud you i platform you i love you i send my son to die for you. To experience the honor of the Father is to return us to a place of deep security. We learn to sense our value from within. We cease striving. We slow down. We're content with the self that God has made us to be. And so as we're coming to communion this morning, I'm going to go a totally, uh, yeah, I'm going to go a totally different direction. I really think this morning we should bring our worst-case scenarios to the foot of the cross this morning. I really think that God the Holy Spirit is inviting us in a a paradigm-shifting way, each one of us. There's something that we've been holding on to. I can put my finger exactly on what causes me the the most severe insecurity and the most severe fear and the the greatest sense of shame. And I'm not going to say it out loud, but it's, it's, it's so pointed for me. This is where I feel naked and shamed when I think about this. But in communion, I can come and I can say, okay, I am naked and shamed. So is my God. Okay, worst case scenario, I am stripped naked, utterly humiliated, totally ashamed, never succeed in the eyes of dot, 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 never have this, never have that, and neither did Jesus my King and my Creator. And I'm following Him. And so at the cross, I can bring my losses and I can bring my insecurities and I can bring my shame. And what's amazing to me is like new garden people, when we come to the cross, when we come to not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to the tree of eternal life, the tree of eternal life, God ever so gently says, with all of us together as a community, I see you and you can be together. You don't have to compete with each other. You don't have to envy each other. You don't have to malign and hurt and misspeak. This is what the New Testament texts are saying. You can actually be together, build each other up, love one another, care for one another, because at the center of this garden, people, is a stripped, true, saving self in Jesus. And then we can just let the Spirit console our souls and build a self that is secure in the midst of loss in the midst of not gaining what we thought we were going to gain, having what we thought we were going to have. And sometimes, yes, this is the trick that we like to play. Well, God, if I let this go, then I know I'll get it. It's the whole sow your seed, get a thousand back type thing. There's truth in that. God does that. For some of us, God is saying, I want you to let this go so that I can actually give it to you. For some of us, he's saying, I want you to let this go because I'm never going to give this to you. And I love you enough to tell you that. It's what will form the truest you to come to that place of such deep surrender and let that falsely constructed self day by day go into the grave. And Jesus promises if that grain of wheat goes into the ground, there is such a multiplied life in this life and in the life to come and in the life to come. Friends, it's a tremendous act of bravery. And so we must come to the cross with our full selves and let him have all all that we are. Father, as we come to sing to you this morning, as we come to partake of communion this morning, I lay down, we lay down the fig leaves that we've constructed. We want to have emerge out of the soils of prayer and faith and discipline a true self, a self that is secure and loved. An ambassador of the kingdom, a new garden person walking in the cool of the day throughout this city. Jesus, we need an experience of your love, an experience of your joy. We can't just fake this. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Come and make us one with you come and make us unified with each other. To be an expression of humanity that every other human is longing for. A safe, secure place, free from insecurity, free from envy, free from competition. To love one another well, I pray that this group right here, these listeners, these souls, today we would love each other well in front of the cross. Spirit, Do your work. We want to see Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand for a time of song, and I'll come back up and lead us in a communion meditation.